The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So I want to spend most of the evening tonight uh, continuing this discussion on what in the tradition is called samadhi, usually con uh, translated as concentration, but maybe a better word is the unification of the mind or the non-dissipation, non-distraction of the mind. So when the mind isn't disturbed, it comes into its, I think it's fair to say its natural state, the state of non-disturbance, non-distraction. And this is a collected, unified state of mind. We call it samadhi. And we've gotten to this point in our discussion over the last six weeks because we began by addressing you know, the predicament we all find ourselves in, at least at times, when we feel burdened by life or stressed by life, the body and mind is tight. And we have some intuition that <clears throat> this tightness or this dissatisfaction we're feeling, it's related to something I'm doing, something the mind is doing right now. Of course, there are, as we all know, events in our lives that are disturbing. And to some degree, at least, to a large degree maybe, there's not much we can do about those disturbing things out there. But how we relate to those, there is something we can do. But first, we have to, we have to recognize that the mind or the heart is doing things in relationship to what is being experienced, what's being seen or heard or thought. It triggers reactivity. And a lot of that reactivity is heavy, is what we call tight, or dukkha is the Pali word for that basic experience of dissatisfaction. Or the one way it's translated, dukkha is translated as that which is hard to bear, the feeling of dissatisfaction. So when we locate it here, then we feel a, you know, responsible for taking a look. Just like we're constantly trying to fix our lives externally. We're constantly trying to fix our partners to make them more like we want them to be and fix the world to make it more the way we want it to be. So in this way, human beings are not afraid to try to change things for the better. <laughs> I mean, the whole earth has been transformed in our attempt to make things better. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've gone a little over the top with that. Now we have problems, right? So we're not afraid of trying to do something to make things better, but human beings tend to keep missing the point. We keep fixing things out there without actually digging into where we could have a positive effect, taking a look at the mind. And then the second trap is then we think, well, oh, so it's here. My mind, my heart's the problem. My habit energy's the problem. We're all just make my mind perfect. So we can get on a perfection trip. But that's, even though it's closer to you know, an appropriate way to handle the problem, it's still a little bit off. Because the more we examine this feeling, you know, this tension we feel, the stress we feel, the, the heart or the heart that's burdened that we experience, the more we take a look at that, the more we realize that it's not about getting somewhere else. 
it's really about just stopping doing what we're doing. So then it isn't so much a path of perfection, like I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to apply myself, I'm going to fix this mind, I'm going to destroy what's bad. It's really, it's a much more nuanced than that. Like one way, even though you may not uh, believe this, but just to sort of open your mind to this perspective is really useful, which is the heart, mind, the life, the experience you've always wanted, you know, perfect ease, perfect love, perfect wisdom. So whatever, however you might describe the sort of ultimate state of being, just to imagine it's not far away, <laughs> right? That that it's it's no more distant than kind of the sort of the shifting of perspective. And the reason this is important is when you have that, like you just sort of open your mind to that possibility, not just believing in it, but just being open to that possibility. The real ease, deep perspective, a perspective that naturally leads to compassion and love and kind of uh, wise perspective, wise way of holding the events in our lives, that that's just, just around the corner, you know, just uh, a shift in perspective. Well, then we get really interested in our perspective, right? We get interested in what's really close to home, like how we're viewing, how we're understanding this moment. Because even though we may sort of go over that first hurdle and begin to see that, oh, the problem is here, we can still uh, relate to the problem in a very uh, sort of dualistic way that I'm bad, I need to get good. You know. Um, I've got bad habits, I need good habits. And instead, looking at the crux, which is perception, or like how the mind is understanding the view itself. And then the interesting thing is, well, how do we flip from, you know, like a distorted view that makes everything appear to be tight and heavy to you know what we call let's say right view you know the view where life experience doesn't appear to be heavy doesn't appear to be stressful or complicated how do we have that flipping that switch and what the Buddha suggests and those who've been of you who've been coming to the talks have heard me say this that you know the basic problem is ignorance not seeing things as they are but when the mind actually relates directly to experience, not through its filters, but in a more direct way, then that clear seeing is what flips the view. So the self-centered view, or, or usual conventional point of view, seeing things from the point of view of me and mine, and you, and this and that, good and bad, that particular point of view depends on seeing things a particular way, like through that view, massaging, squeezing experience so it fits that view. And then, because we've done that work, the view is confirmed. I am bad. I am good. You are better than me. 
you are worse than me. And all the tension that applies, I really need this, I'm really afraid of that. All of that, that perspective justifies all of the tension, all the weight we feel in life. Imagine now even, like the things that do seem to bring weight or fear or you know, heaviness in your mind. Can you, can you experience the heaviness without a strong sense of self? It's like you can't, the mind actually can't suffer. This is like a, a question to explore directly. Can the mind suffer without a sense of self, a strong sense of self or separation? So the way to flip is just to cultivate that clear seeing. It's not like we need clear seeing. We need to abandon what is hindering clear seeing. Because clear seeing is sort of the natural mind. The natural mind sees things as they are. Or conventional mind sees things according to the conventional point of view. So practice, you know, meditation practice and then more generally daily life practice is mostly about gaining skill at noticing what's hindering, distorting the mind in any given moment. And you know, the Buddha points out three main forms of distortion, all the different kinds of greed or craving, all the different kinds of aversion or fear or irritation, boredom, all the different kinds of denial and distraction, or what the Buddha called delusion. So. These are the forces that distort our seeing, our view, and we can get quite skilled at noticing them and abandoning them. And so by definition, I mentioned this last week and maybe even the prior week, that by definition, samadhi, this unification of mind or this natural balance of mind, it arises when the hindrances have been abandoned. So. If we get good at recognizing the different forces of greed, aversion, denial, distraction, delusion, when we get good at noticing them, then we can notice how they come into being and how they cease. We're basically not only interested in greed in the mind, but we want to track it. This is the key to meditation, is the continuity of attention. So it's one thing, it's quite good to notice in a flash, oh, I'm greedy, you know, the mind's greedy. But it's another thing to track it, like to have enough poise, enough composure, enough fearlessness to see the greediness in the mind moment by moment by moment by moment. Because we'll see it eventually cease. And, and when we see greed leave the mind, like think about all the times we've been caught up in craving, lust, wanting, where has it gone? You know, we're still not craving all the things we craved when we were 18 years old, thankfully. So those patterns of craving ceased, but we weren't awake when they ceased. We weren't paying attention. So one of the great lies we tell ourselves when we have a lot of craving is, this craving's not going to go away unless I get what I want, right? But that's not true. That's a lie. There's a lot of things we crave that we never got, and the craving went away. 
So we have to learn that about craving. We have to track it. We'll learn something about how to abandon it, how to allow it to cease in the mind. And in the same way, if you're just tracking the mind and you've got that relatively natural, empty balance, you know, clear, relaxed mind, and then all of a sudden greed comes in. You know, you have a memory or you have a thought about something and you get attracted or attached to it and the mind, thinking mind starts to churn and you whip up a lot of craving. And to see craving take birth in the mind is a powerful experience because there the mind is in its nice, neutral, peaceful, clear balance and then it gets really disturbed, all worked up, confused by its own constructions, its own projections. And that is a powerful insight too because we don't blame the object like the new car we want or the new relationship we want. Because that's not what's deluding the mind. That's not what's distorting the mind. It's our own activity. It's We take the object and then we actively crave it. It's that active attachment, identification with the craving that disturbs the mind. It's not the car or the new relationship that disturbs the mind. The mind disturbs the mind. <laughs> and this is a powerful insight. So, And this is important to understand because you know, we have this idea, you know, we have these statues and we read books about people having powerful concentration experiences, or we maybe have bumped into those really pleasant, concentrated states of mind from time to time in our own practice or life. And then, then we think, oh, that's the ticket, I just need to do that. But we don't realize that the art of samadhi, those, there are beautiful states of mind, they are a worthy aspiration. It's appropriate to want to cultivate that beautiful balance where the mind is really bright and alert and really relaxed, not craving, not afraid, at ease, released, all that heavy, tight, reactive stuff momentarily and maybe even for many moments is released. It's a, it's a really beautiful aspiration. But the aspiration, you know, the, the ideal is one thing. But much more important than that is to understand the mechanism. Like, how does that come to be? How does that balance of mind come to be? And what I'm suggesting is it comes to be through the abandoning, through the recognition and the abandoning of whatever it is that's distorting the mind in the moment. We always work with what's going on in the moment, how it is now, and it's always about recognizing what's disturbing the mind and letting it go. And therefore, when nothing's distorting the mind, the practice is not to do anything. The practice is to appreciate that the mind is in balance. So we'll talk more about this next week, but I'll just put a little plug in, because <laughs> this could happen. You know, it does happen for people, of course, in the course of sitting, especially if your practice is regular you've been doing it for a while, you'll find sometimes when the mind just comes into that nice balance and there is brightness, alertness, and there is a sense of release in the body and mind. But the habit of the mind is to work. And by, if now you, you work, you're going to just, the work itself will disturb the mind. Like wanting to do the practice actually becomes a hindrance. And so when there is a beautiful balance in the, mind, in the mind, the practice has to be as simple as there needs to be the clear recognition the mind is balanced, it is happy, it is content, 
is awake. It's like this now. And then just appreciating it, which means just trusting it, just allowing it to be relaxed and clear and what it is. And that, that itself, that practice of letting it be, appreciating it, not letting it be in a passive way, we're actively aware that the mind is in balance. So it's a very, still very active, but the only thing we're doing is letting it be. We're knowing it and letting it be, knowing it and letting it be. And that itself will refine the samadhi. We'll go from being really balanced and beautiful to being even more balanced and more beautiful, more refined, more still, more quiet, more perceptive, more awake, seeing more. The quieter the mind becomes, the more it knows. Right? Just like if you were in the woods and you were having a conversation with your friend and kind of fiddling with something in your pocket and you know thinking about yesterday, you're not going to notice much of what's going on around you. But if you're in a very comfortable position or posture, perfectly still, not doing anything but listening, you're going to notice a lot about what's going on. What you hear, what you see, what you sense. And it's the same with the meditation, you know. The, the Buddha brings, puts a big high value on the stillness, the quieting silence of the mind. But this is not something we do, I do. That's, it's too gross. The I, the mark who wants to get really concentrated, is useful just initially. And then it's sort of too dense of a tool. So initially it's useful, like I can use that sort of willful ego to get myself on the cushion, to sign up for an intro class, to like want to be a good meditator, you know. Initially that kind, those kind of attitudes, that kind of energy is useful. But once you're in the practice, then we realize that our first responsibility is to see the hindrances and release them, let them go, see and release, see and release. And then when there's balance, then even that sort of effort has to be released. And now there's just more of a trusting, a letting go, not being confused by the blissful, beautiful, calm, peaceful states of mind that arise. I want to say a little bit more about the hindrances and then open it up for discussion. So we sit down, and as we're composing ourselves in our sitting posture, you know, we remember what we're doing, and like a, basically finding a way in a sentence or two, less than a minute, to remind yourself what you're doing. And so, you know, you might say something like, like I mentioned earlier, you know, that <clears throat> I have, I have this conviction, this confidence based on experience, or I have an open mind, if I have no personal experience, I have an open mind that this mind, this heart, can come into a beautiful balance. And when in this balance, this mind and heart will see things more clearly, more as they actually are. And when the mind, heart is seeing things as they actually are, my, the life that comes out of that, the choices that come out of that, will be much more skillful than when I'm not seeing things as they are, when my mind is distorted by greed or aversion 
or delusion. So you just remind yourself of the basic sort of point of view or attitude. And this is not insignificant. A lot of us know we should meditate, but we think we can get away with doing it on automatic pilot, like just showing up, putting in our time. But actually, if we just show up and put in our time, generally, it won't be long before what we're doing in the meditation is basically what we'd be doing if we were watching TV or piddling about. We just, the mind just does its thing. You know, we worry about this, and we get bored with that. We plan that, and then we compare ourselves to somebody. And then this sits over, and we feel a little bit better because, you know, we did something we think is good for us. But the sitting, you know, for half an hour, 40 minutes, that's not technically good for us. I mean, maybe it's a little nicer than running around with our head cut off. But the part that's good for us is the moment-to-moment activity. It's like what we're really doing is we're activating certain intentions in the mind and not listening to other intentions in the mind, like to worry or to plan or to compare, right? And the intentions we are trying to listen to are the intentions to see things as they are. So if we do have the intention to worry, then if we if we tune into the intention to see things as they are, then we notice, oh, wanting to worry or worrying is like this. That's, that's a different universe than worrying. Knowing that worry is arising in the mind is not the same as worrying. Hating somebody is one thing. Knowing that the mind is hating is another experience altogether. We never need to judge ourselves for what we see because that's the point. We want to see things as they are. We want this truthful, honest, direct relationship with the unfolding of the mind and body. We should be happy. We should be appreciative when we notice there's judging. I mean, of course, we'd prefer to notice calm instead of judging. But when judging is going on, the appropriate task of the mind is to know judging is going on. The mind is doing what it's supposed to do. So there should be a sense of gratitude, like, oh, good, judging is like this. And there's an appropriate sort of danger, you know, fear like, oh, I want to be really careful. It's like we're around a snake, you know. I don't know. Snakes sometimes are poisonous. I should be careful. And same thing with judging's in the mind. I should be careful. This mind has the tendency to fall into judging and to then believe it and then obsess or spin with that. So I want that the fear, the appropriate fear kind of helps the mind be really vigilant. Oh, it's just a thought. It's just images in the mind. It's just this. It's just this. Just this tension in the body. Just this content in the mind. And it's that that sort of presence, that balanced, relaxed presence with the hindrances, the different afflictive habits in the mind, that even if it doesn't completely pop and disappear in that moment, just that not getting seduced or caught up in the hindrance, in that doubt or that judging, weakens it. It's like these different habits, you know, each of us, we have our own top ten, you know, patterns that we tend to fall into. Controlling thoughts, you know, trying to get everything together, trying to destroy the forces of chaos. Remember some of you, my generation, 
grew up watching Man from Uncle. Was it Man from Uncle and the Bad Force was Chaos? Or was that Maxwell Smart? Smart. Smart. Oh, was it? Who were the bad guys in uh, Man from Uncle? Anybody remember? Well, one of the great unknowns. Some of you probably don't even know that show. Early 60s. Anyway. So the forces of chaos are there in our mind, but we're not going to do battle with them. We just need to see them as forces of chaos. That's all we have to do. Bring that mindful attention. And by not getting seduced or identified with them, taking it personally, then they begin to fall apart. It's the taking it personally, taking these initial impulses or intentions in the mind or content, you know, little images or thoughts, taking the content personally is what feeds the whole mechanism of delusion, like getting lost in our thoughts, getting caught up in what we're thinking and what we're projecting. And it's possible, you know, but it is only possible if we have something to do with the mind. The mind needs to be directed because its habit is to get lost in our thoughts. And so now we create something, you know. We actually, initially, we have to construct something. So at this point in the practice, we're working still. The ego, in a sense, is working. Like I mentioned, we have, because we've done a little practice, we have some fear, like, I don't want to get caught up in resentment right now. I don't want to get lost in some fantasy right now. Because we understand that getting lost in fantasy, getting lost in resentment is stressful. It's unproductive. It actually hurts. So that's what the fear is, kind of keeping the mind vigilant. And the mind, in a way, is taking its stance on being the witness. The witness of the disturbing, distorting habits. Oh, no, this is happening now. This is happening now. It's this, now it's that. And it can be quite overwhelming. But it's less overwhelming than getting seduced by these things. So a lot of people at this point in practice want to give up because it's a lot of work to see the different things that are coming. Before, the, before we get pretty good at concentration, there's a lot of this. The majority, for sure, of our time in a sit is just dealing with our reaction to the physical pain, our reaction to our doubts about being a good meditator, our thoughts about yesterday, our thoughts about the future, our hopes and dreams. And all of these things come, in a sense, packed with a punch. We want to get identified. We want to take those thoughts about whatever, personally, chew on them. Even though we're starting to discern that's stressful. That is actually the cause of all my dissatisfaction, all the weight in my life. So. The fear, the appropriate fear, um, causes a vigilance. And the vigilance sort of allows us to take the stance of the witness. Oh, I'm observing this. I'm observing this. It's just thought. It's just content. It's just emotion. It's just mental stuff happening. It's just stuff happening. It's just this. That's a kind of um, resolute uh, presence with the un, you know, some people call it a waterfall, but it's it's like a spewing sometimes in the in the more difficult times. Like the mind is spewing negativity. One thing after another. And we want to be really resolute. Like 
it's actually healing. It's profoundly transforming to stay upright in the midst of that, to stay relaxed in the midst of that, not to give up, not to believe that getting seduced by our thoughts helps, including the thought, I can't do this. Oh, giving up is like this. This is just the thought, I can't do this, and it's like this. So no matter what the thought that arises, we try to immediately distill it back to the present moment. It's just the thought in the mind. It's just a thought being known here and now. The more we do that, the more we go from just sort of bearing this sort of ongoing assault of our habit energy to getting moments, more and more moments, where the mind sees one of these habit energies arising and pops it. It's like, it's like uh, it, it takes it, arises, and in a moment, it feels real, like, oh, I really am full of doubt, or I really am full of judgment or resentment. And then the mind just notices it as its reality. Well, it's just a thought, actually, here and now. It's just a thought being known. And the whole like house of cards falls apart. So we really see something important here. When, And I'm sure this is something that's happened to everybody in this room. I don't know how aware you were of it when it happened that everybody has popped these little storms, you know, where there's some little mental storm, motion, content, playing together, tight, heavy, and then the mind sees it, and it falls apart. The mind sees it's not what it appears to be. It falls apart. And then when it falls apart, the mind immediately lands in that balanced state, for a moment at least, which is very interesting. Because then we start to have this insight like I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, where you can go from being disturbed to the mind, heart, being in a very balanced, simple, pure state in an instant. I mean, no distant whatsoever. And this really begins to transform an attitude we have that when I'm really caught up in my stuff, negativity, it feels like a wholesome state of mind is a million miles away. You know, and I need like a couple years of therapy and a three-month retreat, a couple massages, you know, and then, you know, to work out my problems with my the people involved before I'll get back to some balanced state of mind. But we realize that there can never be anything actually in the way of a balanced state of mind, except what we think is in the way. Does that make sense? It's important. So even though you may feel like I'm insane, I'm crazy, I'm really, it is the identification with thought that creates the distance to a balanced, awake, easeful state of mind, state of heart. It's the only thing that can actually get in the way. So I wanted to you know, really emphasize tonight that so much of the work of meditation is initially a fearless, a fearlessness, a willingness to stay upright, to stay relaxed, no matter what the mind projects. I mean, of course, we have our tools. You know, we can come back to the body, come back to the breath, come back to hearing. Right? These are often three anchors that people work with in mindfulness practice to give the mind some stability. We can come back to these anchors, get a little escape from 
the sort of uh, negative habits of the mind, the afflictive emotional mental states that tend to arise. But ultimately, they're going to arise anyway, even if we're with the breath. They'll come in. Sometimes they'll be in the background, and we'll just let them be in the background. But a lot of times they'll come right into the foreground of attention. And like it or not, we have to work with them. We have to work with the great fantasy or the great desire we might have or the great aversion or resentment that arises in the mind or fear. And it's like we allow it to be front and center because it already is front and center. It is predominant. And in a sense, we're naming it. We're just calling it for what it is. Like, you know, when the princess knows the name of the dragon, the dragon loses its power. And it's very much the same. If we know it's just the mind state, just content, just emotion, just sensation, it really loses its seductive power. And so we have to be willing to do the naming even when we don't believe it, like we say, oh, it's fear, but we really think, yeah, but I'm afraid. Then you can name that too, oh, this is attachment. And, and when in doubt, when it gets really heavy, you can just um, make sure that your, your um, practice of naming or seeing what's going on, that it's, it has the flavor of compassion. Oh, this hurts. I mean, why not name that if that's true? Like if the state of mind is heavy, it hurts, then name that. Oh, this hurts. Just noticing that really brings in compassion. It actually brings space into our uh, awareness of what's going on. Oh, this hurts. Resentment feels like this. This hurts. I care about this. It's just resentment, and it hurts, and I care about this. You see, we're really grounding the mind in the present moment reality. We're not embellishing it in any way. We're not catastrophizing in any way. We're just knowing, well, it's like this. There is this afflictive state. It hurts. I care about it. There is this sense of tenderness, of caring, of wishing well for the mind and body. When one of the um, sort of useful, maybe essential ingredients for doing this work is when the mind isn't overly afflicted by negative states of mind, we take those more ordinary moments to develop the power of the mind. So that's why we have these anchors, you know. I usually talk about it in terms of the breath, but there are other anchors you can use for your attention. But it's good to find something your mind likes and then stick with it, because over time, it will literally be your best friend, because you can return to it throughout the day. The nice, things of, nice thing about sounds, predominant body sensations, or using specifically, specifically the sensations of the breath, they're always available. So if you're in the checkout line or in traffic or at work and you need to sort of refresh the mind and build this sort of balance, you just drop into that present moment experience of the breath for a few seconds. And so when the mind isn't overly afflicted by negative states, then we really do this work. We're basically strengthening the mind, stabilizing the mind by connecting 
and sustaining attention with the primary object. And it's not done out of fear. Everything in the practice is done kind of in this uh, in this relaxed way. It's like we're to really work skillfully with the mind, we have to understand that the mind is like a garden. It's governed by natural laws, just like a garden is. Some of those natural laws we can play with, some of them are not in our control at all. Like in, when you're gardening, there's not much you can do about the weather, but you can kind of adapt and adjust from the weather. Like if it's really dry, you put more water down, and if it's really wet, you don't water the garden. And the mind is also a natural system. No different than a garden. And this is, you know, this kind of blows our mind a little bit because we think the natural world is out there. I mean, this is, this is like an incredible sort of <clears throat> example of our ignorance, how we think the natural world is out there, but it never occurs to us that, well, why wouldn't we be included in that? You know, why wouldn't this mind and body be included as part of nature? How could it be outside of nature? So we want to look at the natural mind, you know, and the particular, like if we want a particular kind of garden, we have to understand the lawfulness, like what actually sets in motion that particular kind of garden, that particular kind of ecology or, you know, ecosystem. Same thing with the mind. If we want the mind to look a particular way, like really bright, interested, clear, vibrant, and totally released, free of anything extra, well, it's a particular kind of garden, you know? And that's the samadhi. So when we're not afflicted by negative states, we're gaining skill. We're learning how, you know, and we're using, in particular, like the breath, to sort of see, well, what, how I, I'm practicing relating. The, the only way we can sort of, as a gardener, the only way we can affect how the garden is, how the mind is, is how we relate to the present moment. So we're taking one particular thing in the present moment, like the sensations of the breath at the nostrils, and we're going to experiment. <clears throat> now, I'll relate this way to the breath and see what it, its effect is. Okay, let me relate this way to the breath and see what its effect is. You know, and not only that, we have instructions from people who have done this for a long time. So we practice relating to the breath in a really relaxed way. You know, not using tension to know the breath, right? That's a particular gardening technique. And the other particular gardening technique is we're going to really be interested in the breath, but no tension, you know? So these are the two, two tools we have, or two gardening techniques we have. Like really interested in the breath, really close, learning how to merged, bring the attention, the knowing, right to the actual sensations of breathing. No distance. That's like a full commitment. Immersion, full immersion. And no tension, no forcing, no egocentric, I'm going to do this, come hell or high water. You know, I don't care if it's hard, I'm going to do it. Because that tension gets in the way of coming together. The mind that knows coming together with the object, the present moment, in this case, the breath. So now we've got instructions from a master gardener. and Let's see if it's actually true. Did he know what he was talking about? Let's just see. Let's just really cultivate that alert, wholehearted presence and that complete release 
not adding anything extra as we practice being really alert to the breath. And then what you'll notice, it seems like a universal science. So I think I can say this with a lot of confidence, not, not just because the Buddha said it. I see it in my own life. I've seen it in hundreds and hundreds of practitioners' lives that when the mind that knows and is not tense, not forcing it, knows the object, knows the present moment as it is, a kind of healing happens in the mind. The mind gets very strong. And this is a visceral psychic experience. You can actually know this directly. It's not something you have to take on faith. When you get a little continuity of mindfulness, you'll get a little of this experience. When you get a lot of this continuity, like 10, 20, 30, 40 seconds, where the mind is unbroken, just knowing in this relaxed way, clear, unbroken, no gaps in the knowing of the breath, you'll feel a quite distinct coming together of the mind, building up of energy, stilling of the mind, releasing of the mind and body. And then when you start getting excited about it and get attached to the excitement, it will fall apart. And you go back to a more normal state of mind. And this is the barometer. So when our mind isn't overwhelmed by difficult emotions and agitated mind states, then we really work on becoming a master gardener. What can I do in terms of relating to my primary object, the breath, for example, what can I do to really build, to, to collect the energy of the mind, building a beautiful balance, a radiant, beautiful balance in the mind? It literally shines. The mind shines when we get good at this. And it's uh, an experience you can feel directly in, your, in the present moment. What can I do? How can I learn how to do it? And no matter, you know, people sometimes say, well, you know, I have ADHD and I'm, I've got five kids and a busy job and I've got these ailments and I don't have any money and I'm, you know. So there are a lot of excuses that are good reasons why this may be difficult to do. But wherever we are in that spectrum, like really distracted, really overwhelmed, by difficult mind states or not distracted and not overwhelmed, we can all get better at this, right? We can get better at recognizing the agitated states of mind and not being seduced by them and bringing in compassion and wisdom to give us a little bit more composure in the face of difficult mind states. And when we have a break in the storms, we cultivate this healing, this unification of mind, what we call samadhi, which then, of course, gives us more resilience the next time the storms come in. And we'll continue the conversation next week, but I want to save at least 10 minutes here at the end to hear from people. A lot of you have been practicing for a while, or even if you're new, it's really useful for us to hear from each other what's difficult, what seems to be working in your practice, and, of course, any questions about the talk tonight. So what comes to mind?
Because there's a lot of power in just showing up, even when our work appears to be not very effective, or most of the time we're just giving in to the negativity or to the, you know, when I say negativity, it doesn't always mean like we're just really hating the person next to us. You know, negativity can be just sort of a light fantasy, you know. It's negative in the sense that it's unproductive. But, but, Following through with the intention to get ourselves to the meditation chair cushion or coming to the center to practice, that creates a groove in the mind that's really useful. So I recommend it, even if you don't feel like you're going to do a good sit, don't let that be the reason not to sit. Just going through the motions is better than not going through the motions. But better than going through the motions is to get yourself to the cushion and then to actually, as many moments as you're sitting there, to remember what you're doing. Oh yeah, this is how it is. And if there's nothing heavy going on, we cultivate samadhi. If there is something heavy going on, we cultivate the wisdom that can see the afflictive states without getting seduced by them. And that's it. I mean, that's really what we're doing. Either things are relatively balanced and we're cultivating a an even more beautiful balance, or things are disturbing and we're cultivating the wisdom that isn't going to get sucked in by the disturbances. Marissa has a newborn child, so two. two, yeah, so that's, when you get a little quiet time, I can imagine your mind just wants to become a blob. That's totally true, that's actually a thought I've had many times when I've come here on Sunday, so okay, this is the first time that I've had a week to have that myself. Yeah, yeah. So just watering that intention, and a lot of your work is going to be that wisdom work of being in the midst of total chaos and really not losing it. That's, don't underestimate. It's not pretty work. You know, you don't get the pretty mind states. But it's a very powerful practice if you just do your best to sort of really be vulnerable or uh, undefended in the chaos of being a mom and kind of trapped in that experience. You know, and just learning to submit in a relaxed way, not in a callous way, to the next thing, whatever it is. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just to build on that, I, uh, um, that what you were talking about, how we be going through the motion, and um, as you know, I haven't been here in, a, in the last few months, of just because of life and this and that and the other thing, and so but I continued my practice fairly well, and not as regularly as I had, but it, and it was kind of going through, I just was trying to make sure I was getting on you know, the sets and as I could, and so I found myself feeling just like kind of lost in the whole thing. And, and uh, I remember a while ago someone was talking about you, know, that you're, you really have to have this committed intention, and that I'm still in there somewhere, but then when I was here Wednesday, we talked about that. And I kind of went home with this new resolve of like, okay, that what you were just talking about a while ago, that, that really being focused on. 
and I think in the, in the spirit, embracing what is, um, I think it's great to embrace the fact that I went through emotions for a while and I felt its effects. Yeah. Because I noticed in my life I wasn't as I was more caught up in things and more stressed out in things and, and, and I wasn't able to kind of recognize getting carried away as, as quickly or as easily as I had previously to it. And so it's helped me kind of have an appreciation just in this last few days since mm-hmm. I went home from Wednesday's talk. And like it's the best sit I had in a long time because I really even as my mind started to wander, I was staying aware of that for a few seconds. Yeah. And then we could carry it you know, it's like that was and I, I just felt that presence more and I think it's such an interesting thing to go and practicing about three years now and just see the the ups and the downs and the cycles, and it's, it's like we're talking about how it's, it's nature, it's, it's a cycle. It's yeah, yeah. It's, it's, so it's always great to come here and just hear everyone struggles with it, and yet at the same time, oh, that's how it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we did a poll, you know, at least half of us have done this very definite cycling in and out of the practice. Yeah. Other thoughts people have? What are you learning in your practice that you'd like to share with the group, especially around this more specific look at like how we use our sitting? Yeah, Judy. waking up is that we are unconscious of so much of the what I'm calling negativity but basically the effort of the, the mind makes to not know to not see like we have invested in a strategy of disconnection it's I'm totally insane of course when we say it out loud but that's our strategy to get through life unscarred like disconnect I mean it's absurd because this is our life <laughs> How could we assume that by disconnecting, by not actually being here, not awake to what's going on, would be effective? But that's what we do. So waking up to the, you've just described like kind of waking up in little ways to that strategy and seeing how absurd it is, you know, and how it feels good 
to sort of know what we're feeling, know what we're seeing, even if it's not pleasant. It feels good to know it. Thanks, Judy. A little bit of time left. If one last, yeah, Helen. Um, this is so much, but I've noticed, you know, hurry up energy. And I also notice that if my mind says hurry up, but I don't have to hurry up. Um, and so I've been trying to stop hurrying up. And that's painful. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, okay, so I was like, hurry up. So then now I'm really walking slowly. But of course, the mind is still going to have to hurry up. And I'm doing the opposite yeah. to kind of break. 50 some years of this habit. Yeah. So why would you want to do that? Because it's got to be feel better just to hurry up. It does. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Until we die. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's like, uh, I'll just give an example. Every third Saturday, I go down to Northfield to teach, and uh, it's an hour and a quarter drive. And I have this funny dance with the radio. It's like a Saturday or what do they call Weekend edition is on Minnesota Public Radio at that time when I'm driving down. And, and so, you know, I'll turn it on and then, you know, I'll notice my mind's getting agitated by what's going on. So I'll shut it off. And then I'll notice that sort of naked, vulnerable feeling of not having anything going on and turn it back. You know, and so I'm, you know, I'm real aware of it because I've been working with it for a long time. And But it, it's interesting. It's like... Uh, it's easier for us to continue doing what's disturbing because that has momentum. And it's painful. It's literally, like you said, it's literally painful to slow down. But it's really the way. But we have to respect that it's painful. And we may not always have enough conviction, enough faith that it's the right thing to do. That when it is appropriate, to not just let the neurotic energy flow because that's what has momentum. But to really, like, like wisdom, let wisdom arise with real strength. It's not Helen or Mark that does it. Wisdom kind of stands up and says, honey, this is crazy. You don't need to rush. It's vacation. You know, it's 10 o'clock at night. You know, it's really okay to relax now. You're safe. But even during the day, you know, it's like you're you don't yeah. get it all done. And it's like, okay, my quality of my moment is more important. Yeah, but that's where the, there's a, there is literally a battle between the forces of confusion that say, oh, I need to do this, and the forces of wisdom that says, there will be a to-do list even when you die. The point of the to-do list isn't to get it done. The point of the to-do list, or life in general, is to learn how to be happy, to learn how to be loving and wise. And so given that there will always be a to-do list with to-dos on it, how to be loving, wise, and relaxed? You know, that's really the question. That's the exploration. You know what comes up in my mind all the time that reminds me? Is that, I forget the name of it, um, but the person rolling the rock up. Oh, yeah. Synthesis? Well, I'm continually doing that as fast as I can to have it roll back down. Yeah. That image comes to me quite often. Yeah, it could be a useful image as long as you don't use it to judge yourself, but to kind of like a shock, you know, for the mind. Do I really want to do this? So it's really coming out of, com that image should come out of compassion. Yeah, that sounds good. Thanks, Helen. We have to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words.
appreciate this body, this mind, things as they are now. And appreciating all the men and women who have done the practice in the past, shared their experiences, their wisdom, so that we can benefit from this lineage of teachings and wisdom and be inspired to do our best to be a cause for peace and love and wisdom in the world as a way of taking care of ourselves and taking care of all beings. So may this be so. And nice again to be here tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.